This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. BFM 89.9, the business station. My name is Rich Bradbury and welcome to Matt Splained. Now, um, free. It's one of our favorite state of being. Free Wi-Fi, free digital services, and the occasional free lunch. What if you could build a business worth hundreds of millions of dollars where other companies pay for the overheads, the stock, and the logistics networks your business relies on, and your workers effectively pay you to employ them? Welcome to the world of the new free radicals. Matt, when you said you wanted to talk about free riders this week, I assumed you were trying to abuse your position to take a pot shot at someone who was, I don't know, jacking your Wi-Fi. Well, I know I can be petty, but I do hope I'm not quite that petty. Um, but there, there is actually a story about Wi-Fi jacking that came out this week. Amazon Sidewalk, which if you own an Amazon device, will essentially repurpose your home internet connection to create a mesh network for all the Amazon devices either in or riding through the neighborhood. So not just your devices, but other people's as well. But more on that story next week when we'll also try to tackle the quantum internet as both are essentially competing ideas of the forces looking to shape our digital future. The quantum internet, as in it's it's here, it's there, it's everywhere, all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, quantum anything is always tricky, especially on radio where you can't give people anything, you know, pretty to look at. So I thought we'd have a look at the free riders today, because certainly in terms of the Amazon Mesh Network, there are parallels with that privacy and infrastructure element. And also, it gives me a bit more time to wrap my head around the idea of a quantum internet uh, sufficiently that I can actually explain it to other people. Right. Uh, so you, you could say that your mind will be in two places at once this weekend. Uh, I think that joke is uh, so old that it's uh, already out of copyright. But um, part of the uh, reason for talking about free riders this week isn't just because my puny brain is caving in under the weight of the quantum internet. Mm. It's also because we find ourselves, at least here in Malaysia, back under lockdown. Mm. You know, I'll be honest, living in Putrajaya over the last year, changes in the lockdown restrictions haven't made a huge difference to us because whether we've been under MCO, EMCO or RMCO, we've largely been restricted from leaving Putrajaya. Mm. And that's been a huge adjustment in and of itself. You know, my wife and I live in Putrajaya, but before the pandemic, our lives were outside it. Our work and our clients are outside Putrajaya. Uh, before the pandemic, we didn't really shop here. We didn't really eat out here or do much of anything. We don't really have friends in Putrajaya. Um, my wife is a, an avid hiker. She's very much an outdoors kind of person. And that spills over into her working life as well. You know, there are plenty of bureaucratic mountains to climb in Putrajaya, but not many physical ones. I mean, Matt, that, that's, that's touching, but it, it, it's hardly a unique tale. Come on, there are millions of people experiencing the similar things across the country. Absolutely. You know, don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to invite people to my pity party. Like those millions of other people, we've relied on e-commerce and digital tools to connect us to that life that we had before the pandemic. Mm. What's strange, I think, is how our perceptions of the world have altered during this time. You know, I used to drive into KL pretty much five days a week. 
I think I've been into the city four times this year for things like medical appointments and servicing the car. And how I perceive distance and traveling has radically altered over the last 12 months. Now, I sit there and try and figure out what day I'm going to leave the house and go and do my groceries. And that's to go to a mall that's less than two kilometers from my house. Now, um, where do free riders fit into this story exactly? Because of those two things, those that reliance that many of us have had on these digital systems and also that reduction of our external world. So delivery services bring us food from restaurants, from supermarkets. There are apps that uh, let us try clothes on virtually and then have them delivered to our door. Not that any of those things is new. What's new is that aspect of reliance knowing that it's no longer a choice between going to that bricks and mortar retail outlet or ordering online because those bricks and mortar stores are closed or are suddenly inaccessible again. Mm. So it's been interesting looking at coverage of the loosening up of restrictions in some parts of the world because of the things that you would never normally expect to see people taking so much pleasure in. Things like walking into fashion stores, not necessarily to buy anything, but just to be able to try clothes on again mm. instead of, you know, relying on that risk-reward cycle of ordering clothes online and not knowing if they'll fit you or they'll suit you. And, of course, when you try them at home and you look bad in them, it makes those cracks in your you know, your self-image run just a little bit deeper. I, I, I get a sense of this a little bit personal for you. Well, absolutely, you know, Living in Malaysia uh, as a, a European, sizing is a bit of a weird thing. So, oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the same for you. Here, I often wear an extra large or an extra, extra large. So when I ordered a, a shirt from uh, an e-commerce site in the US, you know, I forgot how different the sizings <laughs> are. Uh, I thought I'd downsized enough by ordering a large, but when I got it, you could fit two of me inside it. And, you know, I'm not a small fella. Uh, on the other hand, when I ordered something in a triple XL that came from China, it was barely big enough to blow my nose on. Um, you know, so the last time I came into KL for an appointment, I sweated my way through the day just so that I could wear a new pair of jeans for the first time. I'd bought them just before the first lockdown, and they'd been sitting there scowling at me, unused for over a year. I'm still not seeing the free riders. We've seen this enormous rise in companies and services operating as middlemen over the pandemic. So it's mm. back to that idea of delivery. If we dial back to the early days of the internet and online commerce, you know, back in the days when Mark Zuckerberg was still a humble student, probably ordering books from an upstart retailer called Amazon, and it still took you days to torrent music and movie files. Part of the promise of the internet was that, for consumers at least, it represented an opportunity to cut out all of those middlemen, those retailers who stood in between the manufacturer and the customer and charged a hefty markup for the privilege. Was that a reality? Do you think we've we've really seen that happen? Well, certainly that, that mid-noughties idea of freemium products where everything from noodles to airline seats would be free if we watched a few ads never came to pass. Mm. You can argue that the competition from online and direct sales has made industries more competitive, has made prices more dynamic. But we've also seen a downside to those dynamic prices. 
So typically when we enter a retail store, the price is the same for everyone. Online, we're never sure that we're getting the same prices. Algorithms and retained data allow those sites to price things they market to us at a level that's most profitable. So essentially, we've swapped one set of physical intermediaries for another set of digital ones. And often those digital operators operate with fewer overheads and fixed costs than the traditional manufacturers. Uh, you mean like uh, drop shippers? Well, yeah, we've uh, all seen those glossy, expensive-looking ads for stuff we know is just cheaply made nonsense. You know, most of us know that if you go onto one of the direct sales platforms like Alibaba, you can often buy the same thing direct from a manufacturer, often in China, for a tenth or sometimes even a fiftieth of the price you mm. see in the exclusive offer by, you know, these glossy dropship ads. Because for those dropshippers... Those additional bits of their time spent doing the marketing are the only real costs they incur. An order comes in along with payment upfront from the customer, and the dropshipper simply orders that same product from that manufacturer on Alibaba who ships it directly to the customer. So a lot of dropshippers can completely automate these businesses using bots. So it's low cost, it's low overhead, there's no inventory, and of course, there's no logistics. And, and this is the kind of business we've seen on the rise over the pandemic, is it? More in terms of principle and ideology. You know, with drop shipping, you often see the operators complaining that they spend more of their time on customer service returns and refunds than anything else because mm -hmm. the quality of those products is often not very high. And the drop shipper has no real relationship with the manufacturer when it comes to maintaining the quality and standards which is what you would expect in a normal uh, sales relationship. So often the dropshipper can't return the product without incurring even more cost. So it's cheaper to simply write off the sale. Mm. So the manufacturer has no incentive to improve standards, to up its game. In fact, they may be benefiting more from dropshipping than the dropshippers themselves. So in other words, we're seeing the advent of delivery-based platforms that sit between the consumer and the retailer and control that relationship. Well, that's certainly one part of it, but I don't see that as problematic. Uh, larger companies will tend to want to own or dominate the platforms that they sit on. For smaller companies, especially when we're talking about F&B or small retail and service businesses that don't have the resources to market themselves in that way, and reach those potentially large national or international audiences, then a lot of these platforms offer considerable upsides for both the businesses and the consumers that use them. Certainly, we see comments and we hear talk about the fees that some of these platforms leverage. Now, in situations where there isn't competition, where there isn't uh, an alternative platform, then there certainly is the potential for these platforms to essentially set their prices on a take-it-or-leave-it basis and operate essentially as a, a monopoly. Uh, by the way, before we go into the break, tickets to my pity party are available online. None of you need to know that. The end of the world is, uh, believe me, probably more fun. When we come back, the virtual companies that are taking on traditional retail chains here on Matt's Plane on BFM 89.9. Build fortunes modestly. BFM 
BFM 89.9, the business station. We're back in Matt Armitage's virtual world this week, looking at the rise of virtual retailers. Uh, before the break, we looked at dropshipping and the way that a new generation of app-based delivery companies are using that model to take on traditional retailers. Um, Matt, what's the sector that you have uh, your eye on? Well, it's interesting. You know, a few weeks ago, we were talking about Apple's new privacy policy and that one of the consequences of that policy could be to favor the kind of loyalty schemes and programs that the big supermarket chains, the hypermarkets and the big box stores operate, that their deposits of personalized data could become a go-to commodity for advertisers if too many people opt out of data tracking for platforms and companies like Facebook, Google, Twitter, etc. So in a sense, this is another side to that same story. Because of the importance that supermarkets have had over the pandemic. Partly, and yes, that's a, a very good point. You know, the first thing people have wanted to know during any lockdown is, are the supermarkets still open? And of course, can I get to one? Malaysia has generally allowed a more diverse set of businesses to operate as essential services. But in some countries, supermarkets have effectively been the only retail businesses allowed to open over the last year. Mm. And while some supermarket chains have experimented with deliveries, as we've talked about on the show before, it's been a difficult space for them to actually make money from. Because they're essentially running a a, a second business on, on, on top of their existing one? Yeah, and in a way it kind of duplicates it, but in a slightly different way. So uh, it's also a business um, revolving around logistics, but it has a Mm. separate set of requirements relating to goods reception, storage, dispatch of cold goods, and of course, cold chain maintenance. Mm. Seen Amazon, which has all the logistics expertise and more that you could imagine, uh, that company has been dipping its toes in and out of delivery and retail groceries for nearly 20 years. And it's been failing to make the kind of impact and achieve the kind of scale that you would imagine is necessary to make that business sustainable. So Amazon, again, with its latest bet, uh, it seems to be going for automated and largely staffless convenience stores and supermarkets. But at the same time, people are a lot more reliant on buying their everyday needs online. So there's been uh, an explosion in grocery delivery services over the past 12 months. Not just new companies, although there are plenty of those, but more interest from investors and venture capital in funding new and existing grocery platforms. So there are a bunch in the UK like Wheezy and Chop Chop. Uh, Bigger international players like uh, Deliveroo, of course, have added groceries to their inventory. There's Getir in Turkey, Flink in Germany, Kaju in France, uh, Instacart in the US, which has been on a hiring spree looking for tens of thousands of uh, service partners over the last year. Mm. In Malaysia, of course, there's Happy Fresh and a bunch of others, as well as the big players like Food Panda and Grab getting into this space as well. Now, what advantage do these platforms have over the gro- uh, the grocery stores themselves? Wouldn't it make more sense for the grocery chains to own their own delivery and distribution services? Well, as I mentioned uh, just before, it's been an area that uh, that grocery stores have struggled to make money from. And part of it comes from the nature of the grocery industry itself. It tends to be low margin and high volume. So that model works well when you have a big central store where you can pile your produce high 
and large numbers of people come to that location to to visit and buy especially when you have on top of this a whole division of highly trained behavioral specialists and scientists who are helping to nudge those consumers to buy luxury items or items with slightly higher margins. So how do the delivery services avoid the trap of holding inventory and and amassing overheads? Well, they're building partnerships with those existing bricks and mortar retailers, and they're directing uh, business to them from their own digital platforms. So in a way, it serves as an independent sales and marketing channel for those grocery retailers. It doesn't compete with the uh, core business of the stores that they operate. It actually complements them. It taps into a class of consumer that may not want to visit the supermarkets in person Mm. or during the pandemic, they may not be able to visit in person or they might simply wish to reduce their contact and exposure with the outside world. So those delivery services are essentially in the business of connection. They take whatever is on the shelves at the supermarket partners and they make it available to a wide or dispersed customer base. Once an order comes in, a delivery partner will often physically shop on your behalf and take the items from the supermarket shelves. Mm. Obviously, you know, different chains have a different methodology. Some may operate this, um, you know, go and take it from the shelf. Others may operate a fulfillment center and the delivery partner simply picks up the completed order from that that warehousing location at the designated time. Now, um, where does the revenue stream uh, for the delivery app come from? Uh, the consumer or, or is it the retail chain? Well, this is essentially the genius of the model, and it's why I equated it with drop shipping in the first part of the show. The supermarkets will normally pay a commission for each item that's sold, and the platform can also mark up the prices to the consumer as well. Depending on the platform, there may be a a delivery or service charge on top. It may be inclusive depending on the value of your order. So as a new business, it's actually quite low risk. You don't Mm. need a lot of staff. You don't need any stock. Your investment is in uh, virtual rather than physical logistics. The app the the, the consumer uses is essentially an automated platform. The customer does all the work of selecting. They pay for those goods up front. And once that payment is made, the app either contacts the supermarket or, as is more common, your shopping list is sent to a delivery partner who picks it all up for you. Now, you say it's a low overhead, but the model I'm hearing it seems to be uh, very labor intensive. Surely that's an enormous cost, especially for a startup company. And that's where we see this model that's been pioneered by the e-hailing companies um, being used. And of course, they're becoming strong players in this grocery market as well. Now, I mentioned Instacart earlier because uh, we reported last year on that hiring spree of theirs. At the beginning of the pandemic, as the US economy was contracting, Instacart and of course, Amazon were among the few companies that were aggressively hiring. But often those hires aren't employees, they're independent contractors, theoretically controlling their own hours and working conditions and very often providing their own transport or leasing transport from an approved and designated third-party provider. So essentially, you now have grocery businesses that don't stock or store food, employ very few people, and don't have to worry about wastage. And that's a nice position to occupy in a low-margin industry with enormous fixed costs. So back to your question about the the revenue models, the term four-sided marketplace is something that started to be used for this kind of service. 
Wait, what are the four sides? I can see two, charging the supermarkets and the consumers, but what about the other two? Well, that's right. Those are the the first two, as you said, uh, the supermarkets and the, the consumers. Both sides are paying. Uh, but also those non-employees, the delivery partners, are also essentially paying the platform because by agreeing to work as independent contractors rather than employees, they're essentially subsidizing their own employment. They're paying the platform in the form of the benefits, the safeguards, and the physical place of work that they're foregoing. So that's number three. Ah. And the fourth, as I mentioned earlier, is that these platforms are also in the data business. Those data profiles are valuable to the producers, to the manufacturers of the goods that the platform sells. Uh, What you buy, when you buy it, how long you spend on the app, how you pay for those goods. Over time, as the breadth and depth of those profiles increases, that information is going to be valuable to all kinds of third parties. So effectively, we're saying that it's it's a mistake to think that these services are in the grocery business? Well, exactly. And that seems to be what investors are betting on as well. As I said earlier, grocery t- uh, chains are typically low margin and the industry itself is highly competitive. In a lot of mature markets, you're looking at profits that range from 1% to 3%, which is, you know, horrible. Um, And that helps to explain why a lot of grocery chains are constantly trying to expand, because they can't do much to improve their margins. So the only way to generate more profit is to scale. And as we've seen with chains like Tesco, that can be a very high-risk strategy. Mm. So these new apps are essentially in the data and delivery business. Advances in technology will continue to drive down their costs. Presumably at some point they can replace delivery partners with drones. Uh, Market share and dominance can allow them to negotiate better deals with the grocery chains they partner with. Data then feeds back into that system, allowing you to look at dynamic pricing models for individual customers. And that data can also be accessed and sold as a commodity to those interested third parties. So you've essentially built an entirely new business within, or rather on top of, that grocery business ecosystem. And presumably, it's an incredibly flexible model. Well, yes, you know, the same model can be ported rather than pivoted to other sectors. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, e-hailing, we're seeing that progression from e-hailing to all sorts of retail sectors based around this same model. And as we've seen over the pandemic, people have responded to the convenience of online shopping. Mm. Uh, If you were looking for a conspiracy theory, you could say that the pandemic was perfectly designed to boost the emerging e-commerce sector. Because before the pandemic, buying online was convenient, but it wasn't essential. It Mm. was something that most of us did sometimes, usually very late at night, but Mm. not all of the time. Uh, But now we've learned how freeing it can be, which is maybe an odd thing to say at a time when we're desperate to to go somewhere, anywhere. Um, But in a normal world, buying online leaves us much more time to do other things. And we've done shows before on the science of behavior, forming and breaking habits. Click to buy has become a habit. Just to be clear, you're not saying that this is a conspiracy theory. Well, I'm saying that if you believed it, it would be a conspiracy theory. Uh, The technology was simply at the right point in its evolution to both benefit from and to make our lives easier during this, you know, really strange time. So it's, you know, correlation rather than uh, causation. And when we talk about forming and breaking habits, 
The pandemic forced us to break old habits and it's forged new ones in their place. Breaking those new habits, like shopping online, will prove hard unless I think there's a similar, perhaps existential external shock. And I think the smart money is betting that we don't break the delivery habit once the pandemic passes and that the free riders are going to have a clear path to profitability. Thanks very much for that, Matt. That's my pleasure, as ever. You can find Matt on Instagram and Twitter at CultureMatt. You can also head over to culturepop.com for transcripts of these shows and information about CulturePop and its consulting services. If you missed this or any of our shows, you can head over to bfm.my to download the uh, podcast or you can download the BFM app. It is available in the Apple App Store or Google Play. For BFM 89.9, I'm Richard Bradbury. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.